Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you, Catherine. And again, welcome to our webinar, The Freedom Book, How the Bible Influenced the American Founders. Good afternoon, I'm Angela Saylor, the Vice President of the Fulner Institute here at the Heritage Foundation. And on behalf of our president, Kay Coles James, we are so delighted that you have joined our First Principles Parent Town Hall series. If you didn't know, a recent survey commissioned by the Heritage Foundation reveals that parents and teachers believe that students benefit from civics education that teaches them the core functions of government. And the good news is that both parents and teachers agree that civics curricula should focus primarily on the rights and duties of citizenship rather than on critical race theory, the ideology that teaches that people are either oppressed or oppressors, depending on the color of their skin. Through our parent town hall series, we have intentionally focused on the pursuit of the truth in civics education. We remain committed to promoting and encouraging the building of parent coalitions. We believe parent involvement offers a very promising roadmap to a flourishing civil society for all Americans. As some are increasingly hostile to the principles of the American founding, we salute Governor Ron DeSantis for signing three bills that collectively strengthen civics instruction and civic literacy education in Florida's kindergarten through post-secondary public schools. So part four of our Parent Town Hall series, The Freedom Book, How the Bible Influenced the American Founders will be led by our very own Dr. Joe Laconte. And joining him will be an expert panel of practitioners. Dr. Joe Laconte is our director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies for Heritage's Fulner Institute. Joe is Heritage's leading scholar on John Locke. He's a former associate professor of history at the King's College in New York City and author of the New York Times bestseller, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, How J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis Rediscovered Faith, Friendship, and Heroism in a Cataclysm of, 19, from, of 1914 to 1918. As we welcome Joe Laconte, we encourage you to send questions throughout the event as we will have an opportunity to respond to them later in the program. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Joe Laconte. Well, thanks so much, Angela, for that introduction and welcome again, everybody. It's terrific to be here. We've got a splendid panel uh, that I'm gonna introduce in a minute, but as kind of the resident historian here at Heritage, I want to at least kind of frame the discussion a little bit, just four or five minutes, to kind of frame the discussion and then we'll get into uh, this panel and what they have to offer. Well, a few weeks after the uh, American colonists declared their independence from Great Britain, the Continental Army is on the ropes. July 30, 30, 1776, British troops are prepared to run George Washington's ragtag army off of Long Island and they burned the general in effigy. But right alongside Washington, uh, they also torched the figure of a, uh, a Protestant minister. So what's their complaint with this guy? Well, the minister in question, as president of the College of New Jersey, now Princeton, 
he has turned the campus into, quote, a seminary of sedition. I love that phrase, a seminary of sedition. He's a patriot. He's one of the 56 to sign the Declaration of Independence. His name is John Witherspoon, the Reverend John Witherspoon. Here's a sample of a Witherspoon sermon from May 1776. God grant that in America, true religion and civil liberty may be inseparable. Witherspoon personifies that powerful bond between faith and freedom that characterized the American founding. Political scientist Ellis Sandoz, in his anthology of 18th century political sermons, and I've got just volume one here in my hand, scores of sermons, he summarizes what these uh, sermon uh, uh, ministers are saying. Religion gave birth to America, he says. All of our writers agree that political liberty and religious truth are vitally intertwined. Political liberty and religious truth vitally intertwined. That's the consensus of those colonial ministers. This is a unique combination, though, in the political history of the West, because it didn't happen this way during the French Revolution, let's just mention. Remember the line from the Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire, one of the minds behind the French Revolution. Every sensible man, he said, every honorable man must hold the Christian sect in horror. <laughs> hold the Christian sect in horror. Well, the French Revolution collapsed into despotism. It was not this way in America, though, for reasons largely forgot today. But we got to remember this history because a new cynicism about religious belief, let's call it the spirit of Voltaire, has appeared. And it has infected virtually every important sector of American society. Our cultural elites assume, they just assume, that the teachings of the Bible threaten our democratic values, our commitment to freedom, equality, pluralism, and justice. But as usual, the elites have it completely backwards. Sure, the Bible has been used to justify slavery, racism, and other social ills, but so what, I say, so what? The narrative arc of scripture, and this is what matters, the narrative arc of scripture is a story of liberation and justice and mercy. For the American founders, the Bible is the freedom book. It's the freedom book. A nation as literate in the scriptures as the United States, especially in the 18th century, could not fail to ultimately embrace one of its most transformative ideas, the hope of freedom and redemption for every human soul. Think about the message that animates now the Declaration of Independence, the idea of natural rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, universal rights that have a divine origin. The founders assumed the moral authority of the Bible as the anchor for their concept of natural rights as expressed in the Declaration. So what about the Constitution? There are no references to God in the entire document. How did the Bible influence its drafting? Well, think about it. The Constitution does not mark the end of the revolution and its democratic ideals. Rather, it's the fulfillment of those ideals put into concrete political form, the world's oldest written constitution. The founders set out to design a system of government that reflected, roughly speaking, a Judeo-Christian view of human nature, neither cynical nor utopian. A major concern among the founders is the problem of what? Ambition. 
ambition of narrow and competing self-interest, the problem of factions, what we today would call tribalism. James Madison identified the threat of factions as, quote, the mortal disease of popular government. And you can understand why. Listen to Madison. The latent causes of faction are thus sown in the nature of man, he says, which kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. Welcome to America, you know, 2021. Madison, by the way, studied theology at the College of New Jersey under that Protestant minister, the Reverend Witherspoon. So how do you address the problem of factions in a constitution? How do you get at this problem? Listen to Madison, ambition must be made to counter ambition. <laughs> Put it in three words, separation of powers. The separation of powers, three branches of government with distinct and enumerated powers from their reading of history and their reading of the Bible. The founders knew that ambition, the will to power, the desire to dominate others. This is a permanent feature of the human condition. Abraham Lincoln had a line on this. I'm paraphrasing, but it's pretty close. Uh, Lincoln said, the Bible says somewhere that mankind is desperately wicked. I think I would have discovered that truth without the Bible. <laughs> and just take a look in the mirror, right? And confirm that truth, right? Like no generation in political history, the founders brought with them to Philadelphia a kind of biblical realism, a biblical realism about the task before them. And I think this helps to explain Ben Franklin's poignant warning when he emerged from the Constitutional Convention in 1787. A crowd had gathered outside Independence Hall. Remember, they've been keeping these proceedings completely secret. Nobody blabbed to the press. So they wanna know what kind of government uh, have these leaders designed and delivered to us? Mr. Franklin, he was asked, what do we have? A republic, he said, if you can keep it. If you can keep it. Think about the naked realism in Franklin's reply. This experiment in self-government can fail. It can fail. The Americans, well, they won their freedom with the revolution. They ordered their freedom with the Constitution. But this is the hardest part of the project now, preserving freedom over the long haul, freedom and order over the long haul. None of the founders believed you could preserve Republican freedom without virtue and without religious belief. And the Bible has been an essential actor in every phase of the American experiment, every phase. Next to the Declaration and the Constitution, the Bible could be called America's third founding document. History and experience and conscience all bore witness to this. In the scriptures, the founders believed they had an ally, an ally, a voice, a voice that speaks to our deepest hopes and longings for freedom, a voice that is both a command and an invitation. As James Madison described their achievement, the happy union of these states is a wonder their constitution a miracle, their example, the hope of liberty throughout the world. The United States, the hope of liberty throughout the world. May it become so once again in our lifetimes. Well, with that, let me now introduce our star panel. And I do mean a star panel. You know, I never get invited to be on the star panels, but I, I for reasons that are probably obvious to others, but at least I get to introduce of the star panel. So Kim Croner and Deborah Flora and Joel Greek, come on on board here, guys. Get, uh, come on board and join us.
Uh, I don't see you yet. Here they are joining us now. Good to I'm be gonna here. Do some very brief introductions uh, for each, and then we're going to enter this into a discussion. You can get their full bios online. Uh, Kim Croner. Kim serves as executive director of the National Christian Forensics and Communications Association, the NCFCA. This is a debating club that helps young people to, to communicate truth with integrity and grace. <laughs> Boy, we could use a little bit more of that in our politics and public life now, couldn't we, Kim? Thank you very much. Kim has been 15 years now in the not-for-profit not uh, leadership world. Deborah Flora. Deborah is the president uh, and founder of the nonprofit Parents United America, which galvanizes parents to stand for their right to be the ultimate authority in their children's lives. <laughs> this has been an uncontroversial proposition for about 5,000 years of recorded history, by the way, but here we are, right? Deborah is also an award-winning producer and writer, a founding partner of Lamplight Entertainment and Whetstone Media Group. And, and then Joel, uh, uh, Greeway. Uh, Joel, help me if I got your pronounce your name uh, last name wrong, but Joel, he serves as the executive director of Generation Joshua, a civics education and activism uh, uh, project for students under the umbrella of the Homeschool uh, Defense Association. Joel has led the training of over 25,000 students in the principles of liberty and leadership. 25,000, that's a small army. I think the size of the armed forces of the nation of Portugal is just slightly bigger. It's just amazing, Joel. Uh, Generation Joshua has also deployed thousands of volunteers to help in nearly 200 political campaigns. You are all welcome at this table. So Kim, uh, give us some opening remarks and then we'll keep it moving. Great, thank you so much, Joseph and Angela. We truly appreciate what Herod is doing to raise awareness among conservative Americans about the importance of continuing to reflect on our nation's beginnings and how we're grounded in scripture despite those current social tides that you referred to, Joseph. So deviance from the biblical worldview that was held by almost everybody, even if they weren't very religious, even just one generation ago, has caused us to call into question the very moorings of our identities as individuals, as people groups, and as a society. Not that calling into question for the purpose of examination and discovery is bad, that's the irony. Our nation from the beginning to the last decade participated in, as you said, Joseph, <laughs> healthy debates of all about all kinds of issues and now we seem to have abandoned that so it's become glaringly evident that those sometimes fiery but always respectful public square debates have become almost extinct because opposing viewpoints are no longer welcome as a result we've lost the excellent result of iron sharpening iron just this week in the wall street journal Gerard Baker recalled his economics professor being a staunch Marxist, which we would disagree with, but an even more avid advocate of exploring all sides of ideas for yourself in order to arrive at the best conclusions. He, his article was about critical race theory conversation, and his closing quote was, open inquiry is the antidote to ruinous extremism. NCFCA's mission would take that one step further to include the idea that students need to understand for themselves 
what they believe and why they believe it so that they can apply that biblical worldview, the foundation of our country to today's social issues. So we exist to provide Christian students ages 12 to 18 an opportunity to learn the skills to first think well and then to persuasively speak truth with integrity. Well, thank you so much, Kim, for that. That is just terrific. We're gonna explore that some more in the discussion about what you have seen, the results you've seen on the ground uh, in training these young people in the ability to debate. I should just say parenthetically, you know, the, the lack of the capacity to argue uh, forcefully, rationally in public life, it has to be one of the greatest problems we face right now. So there's that. Well, Deborah, take it away. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me be a part of this really so important and very timely conversation. And we're really seeing a fundamental break in worldviews at this moment in our society. Joe, as you had said, for 5,000 years, it has been a principle that the nuclear family, parental rights were really unquestioned. I think that's why it's actually not in our founding documents because there was never a concept that there would come a day in this country founded on Judeo-Christian principles when parents are no longer considered to be the ultimate authority in their children's lives. So what we're seeing right now is really a clash of a Marxist ideology, which is antithetical to everything you find in the Bible. It is anti-family, it is collectivism versus individualism, it is not about the intrinsic value of the individual versus what our country is founded on, a Judeo-Christian worldview that is the glory of all countries that have tried to follow after this. What I'm talking about is something we're seeing, an epidemic in our schools that is really leading to a new revolution amongst parents of every walk of life. When you look at CRT, which is one of the things that is prompting this conversation, it's really just the last in a long line of situations in schools where parents have been marginalized and actually treated as, let's say teachers unions call us, barriers. Or recently in another area when parents stood up against critical race theory, they refer to as dissenters. So what we've seen is a march from the Judeo-Christian view that parents are the ultimate authority in their children's lives. What we've been seeing, it started with comprehensive sex ed that was rammed through without parental uh, approval even, you know, and it has been hidden for the most part. I even had to pass a bill I helped write here in Colorado called Sex Ed Transparency. Just let us know what's in it. And there is a concerted effort to shut parents out of this equation. The next thing that came along then was gender fluidity teaching in kindergarten, numerous stories through Parents United America of parents who only found out after the fact and were told that they didn't have a right to know what their own children were being taught. That is absolutely antithetical to everything that was in the founding of our country. And like I said, never even considered by our founding fathers that it would have to be some way in, in some way codified. That then led to obviously the COVID shutdown where we find out that teachers unions were working actively rewriting the CDC policy to keep students at home unbeknownst to parents. And now CRT, this is really where this Marxist, this atheist versus Judeo-Christian view is completely unveiled. CRT at its very root is an extension of critical theory, which is from the Frankfurt School. And basically in, in Marxist-Leninism, it was simply that people are categorized by collectivism. Now it's based on race, then it was based on income bracket and all of that. Let me just give you an example of how this is manifesting itself and how it is antithetical to the idea 
that is from the Bible that precious children are individuals, not in collective groups. For instance, right now in schools, unbeknownst to parents where CRT or equity policy, which is just a nicer, gentler way of saying it, how that manifests is where our country was based on equal opportunity, equality, which is what everyone fought for in the civil rights and was in our very founding documents, in our declaration, the inalienable rights. Now children are separated into groups based primarily on race, then on gender identity, then on sexual preference. And they're basically told you are either an oppressor or an oppressed based on an immutable, an immutable characteristic that has nothing to do with individual responsibility or individual achievement. In fact, it goes so far as to refer to as the myth of meritocracy. Our very republic was founded in the idea that the individual can better themselves by, by their own character, their efforts, and their rights to do so, the pursuit of happiness. That's what's happening, it's time, and we're seeing it excitingly, parents are rising up to reclaim their Judeo-Christian founded rights as the ultimate authority in their parents' life, in their children's lives. Deborah, thank you for that uh, pretty stimulating stuff, and we're gonna get more into the into work you're doing over there. It seems to me, as you've described it, not only critical race theory, but other manifestations of a quote-unquote progressive worldview, it's so contributing to the one, to the problem that the founders were trying to address the problem of factions, tribalism, that kind of identification, which just divides people, divides the country. And they knew that was poison. That was that idea. Those kinds of ideas are poison. Well, Joel, over to you uh, for some remarks. You have the floor. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, I uh, greetings from Loudoun County, Virginia. We are ground zero of this right now. I happen to be one of our local electeds and praise the Lord, I am not on the school board. Um, of all the elected positions I could be in, although that might be needed, I don't, I'm glad I'm not there. Um, what I think is really interesting as we start this discussion off, particularly is the role when it comes to scripture in the founding of our country and in the basis of our country. Uh, it, uh, I think Deborah's correct. There was this presumption right at the beginning that our, our entire system of government was framed up under this Judeo-Christian perspective, but, but quite explicitly under an understanding that freedom is found and comes from scripture. I'm reminded of Noah Webster. He was one of our founding, uh, founding fathers, as it were. And he, I, I believe the quote goes something like this. He goes, the Christian religion is the basis or rather the source of all genuine freedom in government. I am persuaded that no civil government of a Republican form can exist or be durable in which the principles of Christianity do not have a controlling influence. And he's right, okay? Uh, Benjamin Rush, just uh, one of our other uh, founders and signers, um, regularly talked about the role of scripture in the structure of our country and how it keeps our, our governments uh, both limited and our structures intact. And, and if that fails, basically downstream from that failure of scripture as a cornerstone of our society, the structures that we understand relative to our government fail as well. Because really the philosophy is where that starts, that moves then into art and then culture. And frankly, our structures of government are usually downstream from beliefs by a fair bit. Uh, Benjamin Rush was warning that if we renounce the Bible, philosophers then swing from their moorings, as he called it, on all moral subjects. There's no longer a grounding center that keeps us tied to any specific thing. He would say that the Bible was the only correct map of the human heart ever published. And if we reject that, everything else goes off the rails. And Lo and behold, here we are. 
that's why what we do at Generation Joshua is an attempt to take uh, basically our structures of government and teach them to high school students, because as we've talked about earlier, civics education in a competent form in America kind of doesn't exist anymore. And we try and pair that not just with understanding how the system works, because you got to understand the system, but you also got to understand why it was built that way, because if you don't know why they built it that way, you're very liable to just toss it for something new. And then you have to understand how how to keep it that way. And so we try and blend this like what it is, where it came from, and how to safeguard it into one set. Because sometimes you get people that talk about the philosophy of it, but don't understand the function. You've got other people that understand the function of government. They're really good political operators, but they have no moral grounding. And that's just more political hacks. And frankly, we don't need anymore. That's kind of terrifying. And then you've got people that are really engaged in the process, but frankly, don't have that moral framework necessary to keep on guide rails. And I tell you, when you get into elected politics, either as someone as an activist or actually as a as a, as an elected, the temptation to do what is convenient or easy or popular is spectacularly high. And unless you have some sort of core principle document that keeps restraining you, and I would put scripture squarely there, and the slightly bigger one is the constitution that is it is there in our declaration. Like these these principles limit my decisions. And even when there's a decision that I want to make, there's one that I ought to make. And if those are different, the ought needs to go before the want. And so the goal is to teach high school students, because frankly, and honestly, their parents, but honestly, their parents are often the ones who are saying, I don't know how to teach you this here. Let's make sure you have an idea of it uh, on how that works. And so we take all of those ideas, we wrap them into function. So kind of like Kim does with debate, um, we do a m different models of government where the students come in, they pick up those roles, they become a senator, a congressman, a president for a week or so, and they actually get to wrestle with these decisions and, and flip the levers of government. And then our simulations push back and they see the consequences of those decisions. And you get to test how, how strong are your principles? How committed are you to your ideas? Um, are those things you, you you fight and die on or are those things you can compromise on and, and what's the right role of that? So anyway, I'm really looking forward to this discussion, Joe. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Joe. That's just terrific. I mean, uh, one of the questions I'm gonna put to you here later, I think, is how do you combat the sort of creeping cynicism about politics that I've certainly noticed as an educator that's out there. So you might just put that in the back of your mind as a, as a thought. Kim, I wanna I'm just, put, I wanna throw a question out here, Kim, because I'm personally, uh, fascinated uh, and intrigued by what you're doing, uh, and how do we, how do we ramp up uh, the quality of our public discourse? How do we really, because it's fallen to such a low level. You, which you think it's gone as low as it can go? It goes a little bit lower in the next, you know, election cycle. And so, Kim, when you think about and reflect on the the young people you've been involved with in the program, what they have benefited, what what changes have you seen from the time they go in? And the time they come out and they've had real experience in debate. Give us some, give us some real fruits of this that you've seen that really have impressed you. Yeah, that's a that's a really good call out, Joseph, because our students have they've gone from where we are into every area, every arena of society. In fact, one of our alums was just crowned Miss Oregon this last weekend. So, I mean, we've seen the, we've seen the gamut of um, impact that they, that they can have. We've got one of our own there on staff at Heritage. We've got oodles on the hill, but we've got pastors, missionaries, teachers, folks who are out in Hollywood. So they really are in taking the skills of communication because no matter what you're called to, you have to, you have to know how to think rightly, 
and then how to communicate effectively. As you said, you know, the, the idea of that winsome persuasion, the idea of even though iron sharpening iron can be fiery, I mean, that, that idea from scripture is indeed a picture of sparks flying, but it's, it's with, still with a mutual respect for the, the process of trying to, to come to ultimately what, what the best decision is to that truth. And so what we do at NCFCA is we, we have a couple of opportunities for our kids to learn to either focus their debate on things like policy, which is where we love to partner with you guys there at Heritage, or to um, also think more about the value debate, the underpinnings, you know, your background with John Locke, we wanna hear, our kids wanna know about what those, um, what those philosophies were about, what they were for, um, you know, whether it's right to privacy in an election or whether it's better to be precautious or to be proactive, certainly things that apply very much to what we do. That's, that's how we're helping our kids really learn to process through that. Wow. Well, I'd love to see some of your young people uh, in action in debate sometime. We should br bring them over to the Heritage Foundation and have them uh, debate our yeah. policy guys. On That'd be a lot of fun, seeing some sparks fly over there. <laughs> Deborah, I want to ask you how you got involved in this in this fight here for, for parents and the rights of parents. What what threw you into the arena? Because that might that might jog some some thinking with some of our friends who are tuning in right now about how they might get yes. involved as well. Go ahead. I think what I did was what most parents would try to do. My first step was when they were pushing com the comprehensive sex ed, which is not age appropriate, which is absolutely explicit. And they pushed it through here in Colorado. I'd already seen in California because California's like five years ahead of the rest of the country. In Colorado, they pushed it through on the very last day. And I was one of hundreds of parents that waited 12 hours and finally testified at about 11.30 at night. And when I looked in the eyes of the very progressive politicians, what I realized was that was not the place the change was going to happen. They were absolutely tone deaf. This, mm. this idea that parents have an ultimate authority over their children's education and even their medical uh, decisions was antithetical to what they believe. They were already indoctrinated in this idea that the state has the right, the children belong to the state. So then I thought, well, I'll write legislation. And I, it was common sense. If you wanna have sex ed transparency and parents can opt out, show us what the curriculum is. That went to what's known as the kill committee. That was my last attempt through that uh, method. What I realized is what the founding fathers knew. It is we the people. Parents United America, by the way, is an advocacy organization. We are not a top-down organizer. And there's been some conversations about that. That's not how this works because parents in every single school district know what's happening there. And while it had many similar faces like in Loudoun or Colorado, it is different in each one. And what's fabulous about what is happening is parents are rising up, realizing the, the real power in government is local. This all comes down to your school board. They are elected to represent the primary stakeholders who are the parents. So what we're seeing now is this literal uprising across the country. There are about 185 brand new grassroots organizations specific to each area where parents are simply waking up finally, 
realizing that those who are supposed to represent them are not. And what they're learning is the correlation here is that the teachers unions really put all the money into the students, uh, to the school boards, and their agenda is not what we're talking about here. It is not students first. There used to be something known as the golden triangle, which was parents, teachers, and students. The unions got in the middle of that and have alienated, tried to shut out parents, tried to indoctrinate teachers for an ideology that has nothing to do with education. You see, by the way, the complete inverse situation. As in indoctrination has gone up, America's standing academically has plummeted in the world. So what we've seen and what is so exciting is honestly, I think it's the key to saving the Republic. Parents who have never been engaged before, I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican, you are a mom and a dad first, no matter what you're listening to, you know intrinsically in your gut what our founding fathers have said, which is that we have inalienable rights. And one of those is to raise our children according to our own values. So what that is how I got involved. I realized trying all these different other methods that what we have to do is engage parents, get them to stand up because they really are the primary stakeholders. And honestly, they're, they're the foundation. The last Judeo-Christian principle I'll share is that we know the family is the fundamental building block of society, according to the Bible, Judeo-Christian views, and our founding documents. So it's getting back to that as the fundamental building block of government. It starts in the family, and it goes out from there. Yes. Thank you, Deborah, for that. That is just fabulous. The reason I, I had mentioned in the beginning uh, that the concept of parents' rights is 5,000 years old, I had in my mind the oldest story in the world is the story of Gilgamesh. And if you read Gilgamesh, and no one reads it anymore because Western <laughs> Civ has been canceled, of course, uh, by the left. But if you read the story of Gilgamesh, 5,000 years old, the traditional notion of the family, a mom, a dad, and a child, is upheld. It's upheld. That's pretty far back in human history. So that's that's worth thinking about as we think about these debates. That's just terrific. Joel, over to you here on this. And then maybe we'll take some questions here from the queue. I'm looking at a couple of questions coming in in the queue. Um, and also discuss among yourselves here. But Joel, when you're working with these young people and uh, and trying to persuade them that they should think seriously about politics and public life, what do you find that resonates with young people? What gets them excited and motivated to, to be involved when there is a lot of cynicism out there, it seems to me, about politics as a dirty profession, uh, you know, not worth my time. Why would I want to go into that? Look at the people <laughs> who are now serving in public life. Don't sure. want to be like them. Uh, so what? Uh, how do you persuade these uh, young people that, uh, th that they can really make a difference in, in right. politics and public life? Two things. First of all, the cynicism that you list is usually owned more tightly by their parents than by the kids, okay? Um, kids honestly tend to be naturally optimistic, okay? They, they're at a stage in life where they will try anything and we, we actually consistently tell them, you can pretty much do anything you put your mind to. So in one sense, they are well positioned to be willing to try the impossible. And as long as you don't tell them it's impossible, you might just be surprised when they get it done. And that happens on a pretty regular basis for us. Um, we've had kids that have done, you know, 15 year olds, 14 year olds, people that can't vote, who have managed to move state policy on levels or influence elections, actually they do that pretty routinely, just because no one told them that wasn't something they could do. And, and so and in one sense, <laughs> that's, that's the little secret, is you don't tell them it can't be done. 
And I think sometimes that cynicism, we as parents actually have to be careful to temper because if we don't, if we pass that down unintentionally, that's not going to be helpful. So first, first caution on that. The second thing is that frankly, most of them care. They watch the news, they read the material, they hear what mom and dad are, are talking about, they hear dad yell at the TV at night, whatever that happens to be, okay? And they genuinely are like, that's not okay. Like that thing I'm hearing about, I wanna do something about it. Then the question is, can they? And I think what kills youth from getting involved is not a lack of motivation or a care. It's a lack of routing, okay? If they don't have a way to actually have an impact, that enthusiasm wanes naturally. If you care about something, but there's literally nothing you can do about it, like I care about faster than light travel, but I am not a scientist. I'm never going to create a warp drive, right? Like that's not going to happen. That's just enjoyable in, in, in humor and in, my, in, in, in fiction, right? But I care about my country. And as an American, I can do something about my country. And so what we do at Generation Joshua is we provide pathways for students to be involved. That might be a local club that the kids start up in their area that ends up getting involved in state elections. Maybe it's um, a summer camp where they go for a week and they get to test out their ideas in a system that actually pushes back and they have to account to the press. And they have to hold press conferences and answer hard questions and have the other side go out their bill in the center of the house and kind of wrestle with it. Or Ultimately, maybe it's a chance for them to go get involved in a really close race in the election and be actually the deciding impact that's coming into who's elected to Senate or House or even president in a particular county, state or congressional district. We take these kids, thousands of them, tens of thousands of them, and we deploy them into not just any election. We pick the closest ones. And the reason we do that is because if I put you in one of California's districts, I'm sorry, but it's done, okay? Like that was gerrymandered a long time ago for a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them, okay? Same thing if I'm putting you in say Idaho, okay? Or Kansas, it's probably set. But if I'm putting you in Iowa or Florida or somewhere where it's actually a high, like a, a close stakes election, all of a sudden, they're on the front lines of the battle for how that works and they wow. get to practice the skills of engagement and they walk out of that going uh I, I did that like i was part of that election which resulted in this person which resulted in that vote and my you know five days of volunteering here you know in 2016 resulted in this and this and this and oh and then that inspiration sparks hmm. and you see that flame where they're like i can make a difference hmm. and you just walked out with the tools you need and so then when they go home and they get married and they have kids and they look at their school board and they're like, oh my gosh, they've got their toolkit behind them going, all right, here's what we're going to do. I need to get a handful of friends over here. And, and, yeah. and they have their mechanism, they're, they're civically educated. <laughs> Behold, they have the toolkit they need to go do something about it, but they've seen it work right at the beginning. So they, un they have some faith in the process because if they don't have any faith in the process, their ability to engage is basically rioting and burning cars. And that's not helpful for any society. So we try to give Absolutely. them tools that they've seen be effective. Yes, Joel, that is terrific because you, what you're giving them is a lived memory of successful civic action. And exactly. now they've got it for the rest of their lives and they can't quite get it out of their heads. I love that. Let me take one question here from the queue I'm seeing here and I'll throw it out to you guys. It's, it's not going to be an easy question, so, but, so get ready. Uh, with the Bible being banished from public schools, how do you begin to bring its tenets, you know, its teachings, uh, back into that arena? The argument is always, quote unquote, separation of church and state. I can take a stab at that to start with, if you don't mind, although I'm sure. betting that Kim and Deborah will have a better answer, so I'll just get mine out of the way. Um, I think one of the first things you do is you take the principles that, ex that extend from scripture and bring them into the, the, into the debate sector. Okay. Functionally, 
Christianity has been one of the strongest forces for liberation and freedom on the planet. Okay, it is also one of the most compassionate forces on the planet. Most people don't know that. But if you turn around and look at most of our educational institutions in the world, or even most of our hospitals, you will find at the core of both of those, usually a religious basis, most often Christian, okay, of some form that is designed to help better the world around them and to care for others, either in their intellect or in their body. Okay, both of those things are large legacy items that come from Christianity. Not only that, it is also a force that regularly subverts functionally abuse or dominance or uh, one side, classism, for example. It's where one side has said, we're better than you. Scripture and Christianity and the principles that come out of that subvert that. And what's interesting is that most people would go, yeah, all of us are created equal. And they believe that. And when then when they discover those principles are coming from Scripture, Scripture suddenly has a platform again because they're realizing the principle that they say, yeah, that's right. And you say, and it came from here and you just shocked them that the thing they believe in comes from the thing they thought stood against it. Suddenly they have to take a second look. So you start with that principle that they agree with and then you draw them back to where it came from. And then we have that conversation. Thank you, Joel. Thank you for that. But let me give uh, Kim and, uh, and Deborah a chance to, to weigh in on that, on that particular question about, about re reintroducing biblical ideas into the public square in a meaningful way. What do you think? Um, I think it gets back to what I was saying. Oh, sorry, Kim, um, about the fact that it's a perfect opportunity right now because we are actually seeing for the first time, it's been creeping in, but it is completely unveiled now. As I was talking about this, this view of Marxism versus Judeo-Christian values. At its very core, you have atheism, collectivism, the individual not as valued, but just part of a cog, versus what our country was founded on, which was the Judeo-Christian principle that the individual has intrinsic value, a right to self-determination, free will. So there is, even in this situation, when we are talking about CRT, when we're talking about equity policy, when we're talking about, as you were saying, tribalism, the condemning of an entire group of people collectively, that is an atheistic viewpoint. When you bring it down, you're sharing the very foundation. What's so important about what you're doing here with Heritage as far as civics education, if you just take everyone back to our founding document, every fiber of that is talking about this Judeo-Christian principle of the individual intrinsic value of every person, the right to self-determination, the right to pursue your own unique idea of happiness. That is opposite of the Marxist view. It is opposite really of many other world religious views. I mean, as I always say, you know, it's not founded on Hindu principles, where if you better yourself, you are actually then condemned to go back, start all over again at a lower level. It doesn't mean that principle isn't for Hindus living in this country. It absolutely is. But if you teach the founding documents, if you approach this conversation that way, then you can change everything. Even when parents are speaking out on school boards everywhere, the most effective conversations are when you use an example of a precious, uh, you know, uh, for instance, I know one parent who got up and, and also communicated to Parents United America about how their daughter, who is eight years old, was so depressed for being white because she believed her whiteness categorized her in a group that was evil. When you bring that up, you get back to the intrinsic Christian, Judeo-Christian value that that child has unique intrinsic individual value created as they should be 
There's nothing about how that child was created that they need to be ashamed of, no matter their skin color. So it's intrinsic in everything. We've got to take them back to the basic civics, which is what you all are doing, and keep delineating between atheism, Marxism, and Judeo-Christian values in our founding documents. Thank you for that, Deborah. We've seen certainly how uh, how thoroughly anti-Jewish and anti-Christian ideologies played themselves out in the 20th century. We, we don't need uh, to re re rehearse that history here, but uh, Kim, let me uh, let you give you a shot at that uh, at that question, though. I got more questions in the queue. Uh, this particularly important, I think, for you here, Kim, because your young people are going to be debating entering into pu in a public square, which um, is not nearly as biblically literate as, say, in Lincoln's day, when Lincoln could talk about a house divided against itself uh, can't, can't stand. Everybody knew exactly the scripture reference he was talking about. Today, you get people looking at you like you've got a third eye in your head, you know. So the biblical literacy issue, how do you guys address that, Kim? Well, actually, that's exactly where I was going, because I was going to say I agree totally with what Joel and Deborah have shared with ideas of drilling down and really, you know, getting involved, understanding those values. But I think you've hit on something there, Joe. It's the idea that we're not as as a country, as Christians, we're not as biblically literate, even ourselves, as the generations that have gone before us. So I really think that's one of the most important things that that we can do. Now, NCFCA as a as an organization doesn't actually do biblical literacy training. We encourage it um, because it really is the foundation. You know, the, the input determines the output. And having our kids, we do offer events like apologetics where the kids really do dig into scripture in their homes, in their clubs, you know, with, with groups of friends to, to really understand what they believe, what, what does the Bible teach, and how can they integrate that? So I think it's a really important call to action as individuals, as Christians, yes. before, before we can go into the public square to really understand our own, our own faith. Yes, I, I think it's a huge obligation for people of faith to be able to communicate their ideals and values in a language and a grammar that their neighbor can understand. That's part of what it must mean to love your neighbor. You got to be able to talk to your neighbor. <laughs> got to be able to understand you, right? We got one more question in the queue I want to try to get to, and then I want to hear from you guys, kind of your kind of closing statements, if we could. This is a question about how uh, many Catholic schools have seen their enrollments go up because of what's going on in the public schools and COVID and all that. The question is, what role do religious schools have in maintaining free thought in education and thereby our free republic? What's the role, do you think, of religious schools in a kind of cultural renewal? Uh, we'll throw that out to anybody. Hugely important question. It's a big question. Joel, you want to take a quick oh, stab at it? Now, admittedly, I work for the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. So when it comes to religious schools, uh, we, we work with them actually all the time because uh, at least when homeschooling started, a lot of them were the umbrella schools that let homeschooling work in many states. Uh, um, yeah. But philosophically, we are allies on Capitol Hill all the time. We work together. And one of the reasons for that is that we believe that having a vibrant, a vibrant uh, competitive and free educational market is a core component of freedom. Okay, when the government has a monopoly on education, bad things happen, right? So homeschooling, um, private schooling, parochial schools, all of these different education alternatives provide platform and venue for freedom of thought, 
freedom of speech, freedom of belief to exist in the educational realm. And that is absolutely crucial because when those go away, it's not that you, people say they want to kind of get everything into one box because that's going to, they can then put all the resources there and they're going to get the best outcome. Really what you get is a sardine can. Okay. Um, you get everybody all lined up and it, it looks kind of disgusting when it's done. When you go the other direction and you provide that venue of freedom and opportunity, it's kind of like an underwater reef and it's, it's filled with all sorts of beautiful things and all sorts of different fish and all sorts of amazing things in an ecosystem that thrives together. And those private schools, those homeschool groups, those, those different associations provide the diversity that makes a beautiful republic and it keeps those alternative views and perspectives alive in a place that's healthy and important to safeguard freedom and as we watch a concentrated assault on the public schools and the ability to teach principles of freedom and liberty those private schools home schools etc become essentially the bastions that hold those thought and educate the next generation in what yeah. those are and without yeah. those without that freedom it fails okay yeah. so a, become, they become utterly essential there's a real irony isn't there Joe? sorry to interrupt but the uh the idea that now uh the champions of pluralism and diversity in the best sense are really people from the faith communities because they actually are willing to engage with different ideas and have a genuine, honest debate. They're acting not afraid of it. That's that's part of the that's irony. As much irony as it is just a narrative that's wrong about them. Yeah. I think you really want to see academic uh, championship of new ideas and innovation and science and all that sort of stuff. That traditionally has always come from the faith. Of community. course, yes. Yes, great point. Not so much an irony, but an irony that the left, that our friends on the left, have become the, the obstacles exactly. to these very things, it seems to me. Maybe that's the irony. Um, let me give you guys a chance here as we're uh, wrapping things up, kind of your closing statements here. So uh, maybe Deborah and then quickly from Joel, then Kim, uh, close up for us, would you? Yes, I have to say that even though things look very dark in some ways in schools, I am more encouraged than I have been. Because as I said, this is the tipping point. Two years ago when it was comprehensive sex, that a lot of parents just were busy. They didn't know. They just, you know, they didn't in some ways want to know who really wants to look at what your kids are getting taught. And it was so well hidden. I think there's a serendipitous situation that has happened as hard as COVID was for students. And it was criminal what happened to students through this, they, the skyrocketing suicide levels, the, the invisible child syndrome, all of this. But the silver lining was parents got to see for the first time many of them, what was actually being taught. It wasn't just critical race theory. It was a whole slew of things that they had no idea. The way that we got to this point was there was an ability to keep busy parents out of the loop. They were too busy just paying bills and getting their kids to soccer practices and all of this. This is an exciting time to be alive. I want to say that, you know, we all know that analogy of the frog in the pot and you turn it up, you turn it up. That's what's been happening with progressive ideology pretty much since the end of the Civil War. And what happened recently was instead of just slowly turning it up where they could have had the entire victory of this battle, they cranked it up all of a sudden and people are jumping out. And they're jumping out to, as, um, as Joel was saying, other school choices, they're jumping out, they're making their voices heard. And what we're seeing just on this one issue is a revival of the revolutionary spirit that founded our country. A sense amongst everyday Americans and parents that, you know what, it's not up to one person, it's not up to a school board, it's not up to a president, it is up to me. It is up to me now to become a full-time citizen 
advocate for my children, advocate for my rights. And while we always encourage the hundreds of parents that Parents United America represents to be respectful, we're not asking for permission anymore. This is not a permission-based society. When we go to our school boards, when we stand up in to our elected officials, we are now reminding them, we hire, we fire, we are the people, and we are not dissenters, we are the parents. Hmm. I've got to tell you, this is a great day to be alive. It is an exciting time to be alive. And I think everybody's going to look back in history and say, this was the tipping point. It was the bridge too far. So I encourage everyone, stand up, make your voice heard. It's wow. our day and we're full-time citizens now. Wow, that is just terrific, Deborah. I just, I'm, I'm standing on, I'm standing up now. I'm standing up now and that's <laughs> just an amazing uh, uh, culmination there. A, a shaft of light to the dark clouds of the last 18 months. Joel, give us a, give us a, a quick uh, send off and then we'll go to Kim. Sure thing. Um, the I just want to I want to echo what what Deborah said there just for a moment. Um, as as home as the homeschool association, we have we are bursting at the seams with people that are involved now because for a moment everyone on the planet was homeschooler, and we and a lot of them decided to stay because exactly for that reason they they kind of had that moment where the laptop was over on the dining room table and mom's in the kitchen and then story after story where all of a sudden the mom's face comes over the webcam and it's like I'm sorry you said what because she's hearing it dad's hearing it when he's on that conference call it's that thing in the other room and all of a sudden he's like wait no that has been an eye-opener and that has been amazing for us I, I think that has made people recognize the problem now that and now they're getting involved which i think is absolutely crucial and amazing and and the more people that are involved the better i would concur with deborah that we want to make sure that people are doing it respectfully always but but they're doing it because it is their right because a government in our form is where we give a little bit of our sovereignty over and we can take that back and say we're going to give it to someone else now that's really important okay and when the government becomes tyrannical you have to do that i'm reminded of a quote by hancock where he goes resistance to tyranny becomes the christian and social duty of every individual okay continue steadfast with and with a proper sense of your dependence on god nobly that's how you do it defend those rights which heaven gave and that no man ought to take from us Okay, that is the core of what we want to equip people to do, to give them an understanding of what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a citizen, whether you get, whether you're a veterinarian, you're an architect, wherever you go, you understand that you're also an American and that there are certain rights and responsibilities that come with that title and that you are charged to safeguard those rights for the generation that follows you. And so our goal is to equip each generation going forward with the mechanisms to defend those rights and the and the motivation and the inspiration to keep fighting for those rights because if we don't have that inspiration we lose and i think this is a crucial moment to make sure that the people that follow us are well equipped and well inspired to continue that fight joel that is just fabulous i can't imagine students coming into your program not being motivated and inspired by you and your leadership over there so thank you for that and kim over to you all right thinking rightly it's the foundation really to be able to do even the things that our friends over at gen j are doing or in deborah's organization are doing you have to be able to communicate think rightly communicate effectively so as an organization we're committed to doing two things first and above all we're going to stand on the truth of scripture and we're going to challenge and equip young people with those communication skills so that they can speak truth with integrity and grace and be ambassadors in the public square. Our next generation should understand what it means to have a biblical worldview, what our founding fathers 
meant and and the reasons you're right deborah why they didn't even include it in the founding documents it was never a question but to be able to think deeply about the issues that are facing our world in that light so i want to invite our listeners today joe to be a part of what we're doing so if you have students come join us mm -hmm. but if you don't have students and you're listening and you're thinking well i like what you do how can i get involved come and judge what we believe is as part of um, being ambassadors in the public square is that our kids need to know how to communicate in the public it's not about listening a judge listening to them or somebody an expert listening to them it's about being able to compete communicate with your neighbor and so we have an in-person and an online competition platform so even if you don't have kids, come and come and volunteer to judge. Give your feedback to our young people. Help them create their and hone their communication skills. Just a couple of hours of your time can help raise up the next generation of leaders and yes. enable them to do the things that our folks at over at Gen J are doing yes. or defending their own parental rights. Yes, thank you, Kim, for that. I mean, the power of speech to move hearts and minds toward good and noble ends. This has been one of the engines of change in the world, hasn't it? And reflecting on this topic here, uh, guys, on the role of scripture in uh, in our republic, I, I can't help but want to close with a few lines from Ben Franklin, that noted deist, Ben Franklin, uh, there during the convention, the Constitutional Convention, where and he realizes how the founders have been looking back to history for examples and warnings about what kind of government are they going to are they going to get uh but then he's he's concerned because he seems like he feels that they're forgetting something kind of important he says uh how has it happened sir that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the father of lights re referring to god the father of lights to illuminate our understandings and then he goes on have we now forgotten that powerful friend, he says, with a capital F, that powerful friend, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? I believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in the political building no better than the builders of Babel. Well, if that's Franklin's deism, we could use a little more of that old time religion, it seems to me, in our public life. Thank you, all of you. For joining us today in this webinar it's been great having you terrific discussion will be on uh, the link will be live i think in about 48 hours guys thank you our audience for participating uh great to be here on behalf of heritage please come back thank you joe it's been a thank pleasure you, thank you so much